0: Hello, I'm Will Hitchcock. And I'm Siva Vadianathan. And from the University of Virginia's Karsh Institute, this is Democracy in Danger. After the tense quiet, the expected storm.
1: Well, violence erupted again between Israel and Palestine over the past
0: month. Palestinian militants firing hundreds of rockets starting Wednesday afternoon. The spark
1: to this latest conflict was the death of Palestinian activist Khader Adnan, who perished after an 87-day hunger strike in an Israeli prison. In response, the Islamic Jihad fired more than 100 rockets from Gaza into Israel. Israel carrying out additional airstrikes. the casualties in Israel were low. But the Israeli military responded against Gaza with crushing force. The latest attacks have killed at least three Palestinians, bringing the death toll to 27 in this recent escalation.
0: Hamas standing alongside the Islamic Jihad, vowing unity in their response, as news of a possible Egyptian-brokered ceasefire swirled in the evening. Palestinian media say most of the victims are women and children. The possibility of quiet slipping into the night. This recent fighting has come on the heels of extraordinary unrest in Israeli cities and towns.
2: Unprecedented upheaval in Israel. There, citizens have been
0: marching to oppose the bare knuckled rule of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and and new policies that he wants to impose that would give his right-wing Likud party significantly more power.
2: This evening, Netanyahu said he would delay, but not cancel, proposed changes to take power from the judiciary.
0: Together, these events have further complicated the relationship between Israel and its closest ally, the United States. Good afternoon. In America, political leaders are struggling to the couch their criticism First, of Netanyahu's government in careful rhetoric.
1: We
3: are deeply concerned about the escalation between Israel and those launching rockets from Gaza, and we call for restraint.
1: Well, we're turning this episode to to a couple of uh, experts to to help us sort out the context, the the history, and the implications of all of these events. And we're going to start with Youssef Munair. He's a senior fellow at the Arab Center in Washington, D.C., and the head of its Palestine-Israel program. Youssef is a Palestinian citizen of Israel who has written widely on the troubled history of Israel's founding in 1948 and the now 75-year-long fallout from that moment. Youssef, welcome to Democracy in Danger.
2: It's good to be here. Thank you both. Yusuf, the
1: situation has been hellish in Gaza over the past few weeks and months. Dozens of Gazans, most of them civilians, have died. It must be hard to watch all of this going on from afar. I assume you have family and loved ones all across Palestine. What have you been hearing from them? How do you make sense of this current moment of fighting, which at least seems to have abated?
2: Yeah, I appreciate the question very much. And in, indeed, um, as as many Palestinians do, we have uh, family members throughout the entirety uh, of the uh, area. And a major part of the Palestinian experience, particularly in 1948, was the mass dispersal of Palestinians across the land of Palestine and to countries outside of Palestine and beyond. You know, Gaza in particular is a microcosm of the Palestinian experience. Uh, There's about two and a half million Palestinians that live um, in the Gaza Strip right now. And most of them are not originally from Gaza. Uh, Most of them are refugees that were forced out of their homes uh, and towns and villages during uh, the war in which the state of Israel was established and were denied the right to return to their towns uh, and villages and have been ever since then. And there has been this ongoing willingness on the part of both Israel and I think on the part of, of the United States as well to kind of turn a blind eye to that reality and to sort of pretend that this issue doesn't exist because it's too thorny or difficult a one to deal with. And it's this, this very problem that also lies at the foundation of Israel's sort of political identity crisis that is playing out in the streets today. These issues, while they may seem like separate issues, are actually inextricably linked. And I think unless one deals with both of them um, head on. It's impossible to fully understand and unravel uh, the problem that, that we see today.
0: Well, let me take one of these intertwined issues, um, and that is the Nakba, the catastrophe of 1948, which you uh, have just been talking about. Um, Americans, generally speaking, are not introduced to the Palestinian experience of war and displacement that they endured while the State of Israel was being formed. It's an enormous gap in our kind of collective understanding of the region. It's its a gigantic absence, as a matter of fact. Do you have a theory as to why that is? And what happens to the dialogue around uh, Israel and Palestine if that element, that piece of the puzzle can be given more attention, more focus?
2: I think one of the reasons why it's absent is the same reason why we don't think about the founding of America through the perspective of the indigenous peoples of this country. Um, and so, you know, and, and this is not unique, of course, to the United States. Um, you know, state formation is a fundamentally violent process in most places. Uh, and, um, there are going to be people who are benefactors of that process and people who are victims of that process. And and it's usually those who come out, uh, victorious and on top and empowered that end up writing the narratives and creating the kind of foundational myths um, that disregard the realities and experiences of the people who who lost out. Yeah. And for Palestinians in 1948, they lost out on a tremendous amount. Uh, there is a before period and there is an after period um, and nothing was the same again um for my grandparents and 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 everybody who experienced it at the time and also the people who continue to experience it you know the nakba is a historical moment but the process of dispossession is one that continues that palestinians to this day are experiencing you know there are palestinians in jerusalem today who are facing expulsion orders, uh, or are waiting to have their homes demolished? Who are themselves resettled in those homes because their families were forced out in 1948? And this is, um, you know, this is a story that repeats itself in 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 many many places.
1: Right. Well, so Palestinian society exists in all of these distinct areas, and in other words, it is um, geographically incapable of representing itself as a whole to the world right stories are dislocated families are severed you have as you said 75% of the palestinian population outside of the occupied territories or or Israel. Within the occupied territories, you have Gaza and you have the West Bank and you have East Jerusalem, all basically segregated from each other. Then you have within Israel proper, somewhere between 20 and 25% of the population, not Jewish, mostly Arab who identify like you as Palestinian. So that group has a particularly interesting role to play In the politics of Israel for the first time, an Arab party was part of the government in the previous government that crumbled and and allowed Netanyahu to achieve power once again. And he's done this multiple times since 1996. And that segment of the population is under constant legal attack, right? Their, Their status as equal citizens attacked by the Netanyahu government. It's almost like the mask has come off, the gloves have come off. What should Palestinians in Israel do? Like, what, what is their role going forward in this political maelstrom?
2: Yeah, it's, you're, you're right to sort of identify the importance of this uh, community. And in some ways, the Palestinians who live in Israel have the greatest degree of mobility, the greatest degree of, of agency. They're also able to speak to an Israeli society, uh, literally speak to them uh, in Hebrew, in, the, in the, the, the language of the political system and so on. And they are, to a large extent, involved in the political process, although they are constantly marginalized. I think um, there's this question of, will it be a democratic state or will it be a Jewish state? And, you know, for Palestinian citizens of Israel, they have long been saying, look, you cannot be a democratic, democratic state uh, without being a state of all your citizens um, and even the opposition to Netanyahu which is of course very critical of the direction that he's taking the country even they are not interested in Israel being a state of all its citizens and so they you know they are in the process marginalizing um, a community of Palestinian citizens of Israel which as you note know, is not a small community and is a community with which they would have to have some sort of political alliance to ever stop a right-wing government from dominating the political system. But but they can't do it because there's this fundamental incompatibility between these two ideas, the idea of a pluralistic democratic society and the idea of a ethno-religious state. You can't split the difference between these two things. They're fundamentally ideologically opposed. Once you start seeing these things, then the tensions become very, very apparent and um, really unavoidable, right? To the point where you have, I think, political crisis. And it's one of the reasons why this is happening now. Yusuf, this show has spent a lot of time on
0: race, especially race in the United States, from its constitution through the Civil War era, Reconstruction, Jim Crow. We've also talked a lot about immigration. And we don't have a problem identifying racism when we see it and talking about it uh, and its baleful effects and the way it's been woven into American politics and culture from the very beginning. But we, and I say we collectively uh, in America, tend not to apply that same framework so readily to the Israel-Palestine conflict. What happens to the conflict if we can finally acknowledge and center Palestinian agency, but also the dispossession and disempowerment, the strategies of disempowerment that have been going on for half a century? How can we shift the dialogue to bring a little more urgency within the U.S. to this problem?
2: Uh, Look, here in the United States, we have a very American-centric understanding of race. We have a a sort of, you know, for lack of better terms, black and white understanding of race. But uh, it's important to note that peoples can be racialized and categorized without, you know, uh, anything to do with skin color. When you have, uh, for example, Ethiopian, Israeli soldiers operating the checkpoints that prevent palestinians traveling through uh, their own territories it's not about you know lighter colored people discriminating against darker colored people it's about categories of people being denied rights in this case palestinians um and and it's 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 not about race the way that we necessarily understand it. Um, And, you know, when we talk about what can change, I think it's important to note that, you know, here in the United States, our leaders have actually understood this problem for a very, very long time. You know, a hundred years ago, uh, Woodrow Wilson dispatched a commission to Palestine to study what was going on and to talk to the people of the region and understand their desires for the future. Um, And the commission in their report at the time uh, wrote that, you know, they had gone over there being very sympathetic to Zionism. Uh, But when they talked to the people who lived there and understood what Zionism would mean for the people that live there, there's no way that they could support that movement without understanding that the implications of it would be disastrous for the people that were living there. And so we've known about this problem, but we've made some choices over time to disregard it or to maybe not see again uh, the victims of it. Um, And I, I do think that's starting to change. And I think as that changes, what you'll see is more critical discussion of U.S. policy towards Israel and towards this issue more broadly. Um, Because again, when you see Palestinians, when you center Palestinians, when you understand what their experiences are, uh, it becomes impossible to justify the continued discrimination and, and marginalization of the Palestinian people. This is one of the reasons why Palestinian civil society in 2005 called for international solidarity Uh, in the form of boycotts, divestment, and sanctions, or BDS, nonviolent action aimed at holding the Israeli government accountable for the denial of Palestinian rights, basic Palestinian rights, which means an end to military occupation equal rights for Palestinian uh, citizens of Israel, and the rights of refugees to return to their their homes um, as stipulated in international law. Um, is something that people can rally around and agree upon as a call to action. Well, you still have Hamas
1: sending rockets into Israel though, right? So it's not as if these nonviolent strategies and the re- reference to human rights take care of the immediate moment or cover the immediate moment either, right? So it seems like it it, it can't be as simple as merely reverting to international law and mounting a global nonviolent campaign.
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, I think you're right. And uh, even when, as, as you point out, the rockets may, may, be, may be flying, even when they're not, the persistent daily human rights violations continue. And I I think that, you know, when it comes to Palestinian activism and resistance uh, to Israeli policy, Palestinians have tried a variety of different tactics, including armed resistance um, and nonviolent activism for over a hundred years in response to Zionism. And, you know, this is not unlike every other peoples in the world that is struggling for their rights, you, you see a variety of different methods being deployed. Um, and I have to tell you, for you know the, the Palestinian that is, um, let's say, living in the Gaza Strip or living in the West Bank, who has had an American-made F-16 drop a one-ton bomb on their home, uh, wiping out all but them and their family, and seeing that repeated year after year after year, it's not particularly convincing to someone like that to say, look, we need to mount an international nonviolent campaign to boycott this or that product. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, the, you know, the gravity of the situation, it hits very differently. And so I, I do think, uh, you know, when it comes to boycotts, for example, global civil society has a role to play. And it's not necessarily the same role that Palestinians living under occupation have to play. But our civil society has a role to play in speaking up uh, about our own complicity, about the role that our tax dollars play in supporting a system of discrimination that continues every day. And that shouldn't be discounted, even if it's not the only type of activity that we see. You know, Yusuf, that strategy of trying to globalize or internationalize what
0: essentially is a colonial struggle has a a long history located in the wars of decolonization. And of course, the Algerian National Liberation Front was one of the most successful in trying to place their struggle uh, on the international plane and gaining leverage by doing so. So it's clearly part of a long history of resistance. I just want to end with uh, coming back to this way in which you think the Palestinian struggle and of course, the violence in Gaza And the simultaneous kind of train wreck of Israeli democracy, the erosion, the collapse, whatever you want to call it. Or some people would say, no, it's vibrant. Look, look at all these people in the streets. What a wonderful democracy. But there's a larger problem. Is it a symbiotic relationship? Is one radicalizing the other? Uh, And if so, how might it become unwound?
2: Yeah, I think it all goes back to the very structure of the state that is only going to lead to, to greater conflict down the road. But as you have demographic shifts in Israel that have empowered right-wing religious nationalists, uh, now suddenly the crosshairs of, of this discriminatory system are not merely targeting Palestinians. Uh, they are also going to begin to target and discriminate against secular Israelis who don't necessarily want to live in a country that's dominated by religious nationalists. Uh, But if those are the parties in power now, they're increasingly going to get to define what a Jewish state means, and it's going to continue to spin into ever dangerous iterations like the ones that we are, are seeing today. Yusuf Munair, thank you so much for joining us on Democracy in Danger. Thank you very much for having me.
1: Youssef Munair heads the Palestine-Israel program at the Arab Center in Washington, D.C., and he's a leading advocate for Palestinian rights. His work has appeared in Al Jazeera, The Nation, The New York Times, and Foreign Policy, among others. He holds a Ph.D. in International Relations and Comparative Politics from the University of Maryland.
0: Well, we're going to turn now to a policy analyst in Tel Aviv and go a little deeper on the landscape of domestic politics in Israel.
1: Yeah, we have Dahlia Shinlin on the line with us. Dahlia has been working for over two decades for democracy and human rights in the region. She is the author of the forthcoming book, The Crooked Timber of Democracy in Israel, Promise Unfulfilled. Dahlia, welcome to Democracy in Danger.
3: Thank you so much for having me.
1: So, Dahlia, clearly many Israelis are displeased with their government. It seems like this is some sort of delayed reaction to the larger agenda of the Netanyahu administration, his nationalist, authoritarian, some would say racist agenda. Can you help put this in context? What are these protests all about? Are they about more than what we're seeing on the placards and through the chants?
3: Well, that's a very good and broad starting question. Let me just say that the immediate trigger for the protests was that the new government that was established by Benjamin Netanyahu in the very final days of 2022, within days of that government being established... The justice minister who is from Netanyahu's party, which is a mainstream center, let's say right-wing party, but generally considered to be of the more moderate right-wing or center right, that justice minister uh, within days unveiled a plan that would essentially mean the end of judicial review over executive and legislative action. It would mean that the coalition, any coalition has essentially unlimited capacity to override a Supreme Court ruling especially Supreme Court rulings that would strike down legislation that it deems to violate human rights laws. Uh, It would allow the coalition to select the justices for the Supreme Court and other lower courts, and it would essentially turn all legal advisors for ministries into government loyalists. And I think the Israeli public realized very quickly that it was basically giving the coalition, any coalition, but this is a very firm and far right-wing nationalist and largely theocratic coalition, unlimited powers. In a country that doesn't have any of the normal checks and balances you would expect to see in democratic countries, uh, the only constraint we have on that power of the executive is the fact that by tradition, the Supreme Court has acted in ways that constrain what it views as government action that is too far reaching and that might violate the rights of citizens. And so once Israelis realized, and they realized to their credit very, very quickly with the establishment of this government, that the executive would essentially have unrestrained power. They said, this could directly affect all of our lives. It could mean that the government can pass legislation that would allow, for example, discrimination in the provision of goods and services in the private sector. That was something that was openly discussed. I just want to add that what they did not realize was that the groundwork had been laid over the course of years. And most people, I I suppose, were not sufficiently focused on it over the course of those years, other than those who were in favor of it. Political leadership on the right wing has been openly, rhetorically attacking the Supreme Court, you know, slandering it, basically calling it a dictatorship and running roughshod over the uh, the true will of the people. This touches on very long-term far-reaching, unresolved constitutional and identity issues of the state of Israel.
0: Dalia, let me ask you an even longer-term historical question as the historian here. Why doesn't Israel have a constitution? And what have been the effects of that uh, lack of a written document to which people can appeal and say, look, you can't do this. It's written in our constitution. Why is it missing?
3: Yeah, I think there's uh, a very uh, common tendency for many observers to think that there was a single explanation, that in the early days of statehood, that the Prime Minister David Ben-Gurion believed that the coalition was too unstable, that the religious parties didn't want a constitution that would establish secular civic values, uh, that maybe he wanted to deny equal citizen and civil rights for Palestinian citizens of Israel. The fact is, as far as I read the history, I've really been convinced that it was not one, but all of those factors together. And one Additional factor beyond them, which is often kind of understated, and that's that Ben Gurion himself believed that the best way to build the new state was for him to have unlimited powers (laughs) and for him to have as few constraints as possible on his actions personally and on the actions of the executive, which he controlled. But it's worth remembering that Israel had committed to the international community to pass a constitution almost immediately after independence. This was stipulated by UN General Assembly Resolution 181, which we know as the partition plan and which Israel accepted and stated in its declaration of independence that it would do. And instead the government came up with the idea of passing basic laws one by one that would define at the very least the powers of government and that they could happen incrementally, and that at the end of this ill-defined process, even the basic laws themselves were not defined, that those would add up to a constitution. The impact of that has been that there was no grounding. There was no legal anchor for civil or human rights in Israel until 1992. All the basic laws that were passed prior to that were defining the institutions of government, but they were not actually anything like approaching a bill of rights, even though there were many, many attempts made over the years Interestingly, often from parties that self-defined as liberal parties, and one of the biggest proponents of a constitution was the Kherut party, which is the forerunner to today's modern Likud party, because they considered themselves committed to individual rights and protections, and they believed in limitations on the power of the state. Today's Likud has gone completely in the opposite direction and is seeking no constraints on the power of the state.
0: We we've had similar uh, problems in this country with party parties abandoning their traditions as well. So
1: so this I mean this is fascinating because of course uh Palestine was a colony of the British Empire and former British controlled states often did explicitly pursue a written constitution, India being the best example, but even Burma did, Uh, a number of them, Kenya, right? They all pursued written constitutions, upon independence. Uh, and yet Israel followed the British model right? and and decided to have this haphazard.
3: And and they said that openly. Yes, it, we don't have to have a formal written constitution. Just look at the UK.
0: Right. Just just one uh, one technical question. There is, of course, a presidency, a head of state in Israel. It's a weak office. But the president has played an important role in the current fight, hasn't he? He's been able to step forward and say, look, we, we can't go this route we have to negotiate can you talk just a little bit about that dimension
3: yeah i mean i think even before i talk about the president what i want to say about the particular role that he's taken is that everybody's winging it to put it bluntly there's no defined power of the president to do anything about this it's in fact it's extraordinary that he even got involved to the level that he has and even more extraordinary in the beginning he made a few statements calling for calm and calling for you know some sort of reconciliation and to tone down you know, the anger, but eventually he made a statement that was very, very defiant and said, this legislation as it stands now, the package of legislation the government was proposing to undercut the judiciary must pass from this world. That was, those were his words. And that was absolutely extraordinary because the president in this country generally tries to stay above partisan politics, even though they almost all come from a party background. Israel's president is a very interesting figure. His name is Isaac Herzog. And he comes originally from the Labour Party and he comes from an interesting pedigree, which I'll talk about, but he's taken quite an extraordinary role in his reactions to the current developments. Normally presidents have to stay above politics. They try not to intervene in political affairs and they don't have any authority to intervene in political affairs. They do not have powers of veto. The most important role the president has that has an impact on politics is following elections. When the president chooses who gets to form the next government, but even that is not truly at his discretion. I would say this particular president happens to be a person of great uh, likability. He is a person who has really made his career kind of um, getting along with people across the aisle as well. He's a very conciliatory figure. He has very interesting historic background, too. His father was a previous president of the country and his grandfather was the first chief rabbi of the new state. He has a sort of moral authority given his reputation as somebody who can get along with everybody, and so he stepped in, began a dialogue. But I have to say that the dialogue is not going well. Any day, uh, the entire country expects the dialogue to collapse, and that's because there is a very profound disagreement about what the outcome should be. The parties in the government, Netanyahu's Likud, and all the parties further to the right, ultimately want to get to a place where there are no constraints on the executive, and there's a reason why they want that. Netanyahu has his interest; he is standing trial for corruption. You know, he wants to weaken the authority of the judiciary. Uh, The theocratic parties want to impose more religion, more Jewish religion on society. All of them want to annex the West Bank and control Gaza in perpetuity. And they don't, they can't deal with judicial constraints. And so we all think it's unlikely that there will be a, a, a significant compromise at this point.
1: So so let's talk a bit about the uh the non-Jewish citizens and subjects of Israel as well, right? We have uh nearly a quarter of the population of Israel are uh, are Arab or Palestinian, uh, uh often of a, v- a variety of religions. Is their status secure as
3: citizens under
1: this government, under this non-constitution?
3: I think that we have to go back again as historians and ask was well, their situation ever stable as citizens. Remember that because Israel didn't have a constitution, it also didn't have to define citizenship right away. And it neglected or declined to define citizenship for the next four years. And so for the first four years of independence, technically nobody was a citizen, but uh, Israel did pass a law of return allowing all Jews status in Israel. They didn't actually use the word citizenship, but it was clear. And Arab Palestinians who were in Israel Didn't actually have citizenship until uh, 1952 when Israel passed its citizenship law. They were also placed immediately during the War of Independence under martial law. They were not governed by the same regime as. Israeli civilians. On the other hand, you have many kinds of institutional practices and even laws that in practice were discriminating against them over the years in terms of resources, distribution, development of their communities, uh, their their eligibility for the best jobs in Israel, or uh, the fact that the army is kind of an entry ticket to many professions in Israeli society. So they were naturally marginalized over the years from social and economic life. And in 2018, Israel then passed a law called the nation state law, defining Israel exclusively as the state of the Jewish people. Now you could on the one hand say that's kind of symbolic. It doesn't have immediate impact, but it does have immediate impact. Uh, Symbolism is immediate impact. It lowered the status of the Arabic language from an official language to a language of special status, which everybody knows what that means. It means that if the government tries to remove Arabic from the public space and somebody challenges that in the Supreme Court, the government could argue, but we have a nation state law that allows us to do that. But the nation state law, you know, was an immediate shock to the Palestinian citizens of Israel who realized that this was not a culmination, but possibly the the beginning of a new process of deterioration in the stability of their status in Israel. And that essentially allows the government, if it wants to, to continue passing discriminatory laws, uh, weakening their rights, weakening their position. And this has already taken shape in the form of legislation that was passed very quickly by the government, for example, to allow it to deport Arab citizens uh, convicted of terrorism. Now, nobody has to justify terrorism to know that deportation of citizens is a violation of citizenship. And moreover, the law is defined in a way such that it can apply only to Arab-Palestinian citizens. The government has also uh, held a preliminary vote on a death penalty for Palestinians or Arabs convicted of terrorism, and that would apply to Palestinians, but also potentially to Arab citizens. It's only gone through a preliminary reading. It probably won't pass. But these are the kinds of things that are enabled by a law that defines Israel as the nation state of the Jewish people.
0: Right. There's a kind of a, a radicalization process. Dahlia, you were speaking of symbols and symbolism a little bit, and I just wanted to pick up that and talk a little bit um, about the historical context again. So in May, when Israel celebrates its founding anniversary as a national holiday, Palestinians commemorate that moment as the Nakba. And you have written quite a lot about the ways in which you feel that Israelis have not sufficiently grappled with or integrated into their own national culture the memory of the transformation of many Arabs and Palestinians into refugees through the founding of the State of Israel, and that this has to happen. How can that happen? Has too much time passed for Israel's national culture, in a sense, to widen, to incorporate the story of of Palestinian trauma and dispossession into their own founding narrative? Or will that never happen? Is it an impossible vision that you hold out?
3: There's no statute of limitations on history. Mm. And I would say almost the opposite. I would say enough time has passed. Israel is, if not the most, one of the most powerful countries in the Middle East, It holds all of the political, economic, and military power between the river and the sea. Israel is secure enough in terms of who it is. It should be. There is no reason why Israel can't confront the bad things that it's done in its own history. There are very few countries that were not born in some sort of trauma they committed to other people. And so I don't think this has to be seen as some sort of denial of Israel's legitimacy. Uh, It doesn't have to be seen as undermining Israel's claim to statehood. Uh, It doesn't have to be seen as weakening Israel. A country is stronger when it knows its own history. I think people are stronger when they know that part of their responsibility is to learn about what they have done in their history and take responsibility for it. Does it mean the negation of the existence of Israel? No, I think it means a better Israel. And I don't think it contradicts any of the other history of the Jewish people. The Jewish people went through the worst traumas in human history in the 20th century, right? Uh, And none of that changes because Israel committed grave crimes to the Palestinians who were here. All of those things are true. And I don't see how anybody does any child, any justice, by denying things that are true. I mean, we live in a world where the very concept of facts are under dispute. And I think the best thing we can do for young people or for anybody is to say, let's acknowledge all the facts and then cope with them. It makes us more human, and it makes, I think, our society collectively stronger. Unfortunately, I think there are very few Israelis who see it the way I do. This is an enormous fight. Uh, The word Palestinian refugees is toxic for most Israeli Jews. Whenever I do survey research on the issue of allowing Palestinian return, you have a vast consensus of Israeli Jews dead set against it. And so there's a long way to go before any of that can happen.
0: Palestinian refugees. Why exactly is is that phrase so explosive, and, and why is it rejected?
3: In the Jewish-Israeli narrative and collective memory, Jews were being attacked for being Jewish and for wanting a state. And that is true too. In other words, there were invading armies. There were violent clashes and bloodshed and death and destruction before statehood and after the UN partition plan was accepted by the Jewish community uh, in in November 1947 and people were killed. And yes, it's true. The Arab Higher Committee that was representing the Palestinian Arabs did not want a Jewish state. I mean, all of that is true. And so from their perspective, that's the only reason why Jews had to fight back. And they also say, you know, something you hear very commonly is that if Jews had been the weaker party, if they hadn't driven out or they hadn't, you know, waged a war in which Arabs had to leave, this is, I'm I'm speaking in the narrative of Israeli Jews, then they would have been slaughtered themselves. Well, I think that the true part of it is that there really was intercommunal violence there really was a war there really were states invading and you know Israel was fighting uh and it's true that the Arab uh, states rejected the partition plan and the Arab higher committee what is also true is that the Jewish leadership of the issue very much believed that there had to be a complete Jewish majority, complete, I mean, you know, 51 to 95%. I don't know how well they planned that out, but they did have plans, whether those plans were active, written, spoken or not. We all know that there was something called plan D or Dalit, the fourth letter of the Hebrew alphabet that had to do with how, you know, to uh, essentially (laughs) expel or cause the Arab Palestinians in the region to leave. There were orders more or less explicit. There were massacres. There were massacres after battles were over. There was a very conscious and very open and explicit decision by the Israeli leadership not to let them back in over the years. Uh, And that is despite United Nations Resolution 194 that says the refugees should be allowed back at the earliest practicable date if they are willing to live in peace The fact is that the Zionist leadership wanted to maintain a Jewish majority. They never truly accepted the partition plan boundaries because that would have meant the population balance was about 45 percent non-Jews, Arab-Palestinians, and they were never happy with that. And so to most Israelis, the idea that you would let these people in is both historically and morally unfair in their perspective. And it is very prominent in terms of how most Israeli Jews think.
1: So you have Palestinians in Gaza, Palestinians in the West Bank, Palestinians in Israel, Um, all of whom have suffered some version of trauma over the last 75 years. What is the potential for either moving past the blame or achieving some sort of recognition of common humanity and common fate forged by trauma, right? That humans are bad to humans uh, and that in some ways we are all victims of ourselves, right? Is there a seed of that sort of potential in Israel today? And if not, what's the future hold?
3: I think there has always been uh, some small, frankly, small portion of Israelis who are willing to acknowledge the Palestinian national identity, an even smaller portion who are willing to acknowledge that the the trauma that that Israel has done to them. Um, And there is generally a kind of resilient, small but resilient and enduring camp of people who support peace on some level. The thing is what that peace means has changed over the years. and before 1967, I would I would just be honest, it wasn't much of a conversation, but after 1967, when Israel was very visibly in control of Palestinians who are not citizens, uh, there was almost immediately a camp of people who were saying, you know, there needs to be a Palestinian state. And pretty, you know, within about 20 years after that, of 1988, the PLO, the representative of the Palestinians, declared that their vision for self-determination was to have their own state within the West Bank, Gaza, and East Jerusalem, or the areas that Israel conquered in 1967. And that, for a long time, was understood as the way that there could be a kind of you know a mutual recognition a balanced sense of you know the Jews have their state the Palestinians have their state we'll leave the internal conversations for later even though that's thorny as well because there are a million and a half or more than a million and a half now Palestinian citizens of Israel as i discussed but at least there would be a, a kind of symbolic homeland for each however over the years you know the and the reasons are way too long for us to go into now that entire paradigm has basically collapsed and I think anybody who still supports what you're talking about, that seed of recognition of the other, putting the trauma behind us, or at least acknowledging it and learning how to live with it so that we can all rebuild and build for the future. That camp of people have been left a little bit bereft because increasingly people who support peace are acknowledging that there's no real way to separate the two populations. Israel is in control over everything from the river to the sea. And I include Gaza because Israel controls almost everything about Gaza except internal local affairs. Uh, but of course the West Bank as well. And in that situation, the populations are becoming increasingly mixed. They're simply living under vastly unequal forms of governance. And so the most hopeful perspective are those who say we acknowledge that both sides still need to have national realization through uh, national self-determination realized in the form of their own national symbols with their own culture and language and maybe religious definition of their state, but that they can't and they shouldn't be partitioned through a hard international border that essentially means the two sides are cut off from one another when in fact they are interdependent they are living amongst one another hard separation will mean further uprooting of more people and that approach is considered we we sometimes call it a two state two states in a confederated approach a sort of uh, you know limited union in which the two sides have open borders freedom of movement The possibility of residency on the other side, but each side retains their national symbolism and their national narrative and their culture and identity and, and, uh, you know, symbolic self-determination. And
1: and it's possible. Like Like Spain and France or Spain and Portugal.
3: Like the European Union, as a matter of fact, which also was born out of the ashes of really the worst human destruction I think we'd ever seen in the modern era. And, you know, people say, oh, this sounds like a fantasy But frankly, I think the idea of a two-state partition where you try to draw a hard border down the middle of the map and, you know, even just think of Jerusalem, it's anybody who knows Jerusalem, it's a fantasy to consider separating it. I think this is much more realistic. Uh, It's certainly not ideal. There are lots of compromises all sides have to make for this approach. But the idea that somehow, you know, the only other alternative has something to do with one democratic state, which can also be seen as a much neater formation, right? You have one territory, know, territorial entity. Everybody is equal. One person, one vote. That was the South Africa solution, if you will, to apartheid. I, uh, you know, there's just no way around the reality that that will never happen. It will never happen. One state under Israeli control is always going to mean a permanent unequal state. Um, And I don't personally don't think, you know, an unequal state is acceptable.
0: Dahlia, thank you so much for joining us on Democracy in Danger.
3: Thank you so much for having me. Great conversation.
0: Dahlia Shindlin is a policy analyst and fellow at Century International, a project of the Century Foundation. She holds a Ph.D. in political science and is a co-host of the Tel Aviv Review podcast. Her forthcoming book out this September is The Crooked Timber of Democracy in Israel, Promise Unfulfilled. Democracy in Danger is part of the Democracy Group podcast
1: network. Visit democracygroup.org to find all our sister shows. We'll be right back. Well, we've both visited israel we've we've seen the situation on the ground but you actually spent some of your youth there right what what was your sense of israel as a young person there how has your sense of israel and palestine changed over the years
0: yeah it's an amazing story so as a as a young teenager uh, i went to israel in 1977 my father worked in the us embassy in tel aviv so i was an american in israel i did not know any hebrew i was not jewish i am not jewish but I, like many Americans, fell in love with Israel. Mm-hmm. And I there was a lot about Israel I did not know and sure. did not understand. But it was a dynamic city, a dynamic country with a very vibrant culture, a beautiful landscape. And of course, to my American eyes, much of Israel's history was not known to me. I did not see the way in which it had been constructed upon the, the ruins of another civilization. True, um, But that said, there was something... Pretty optimistic about Israel in the late 70s, and one of the biggest moments of the last half century occurred while we were there, which was the Camp David Accords. Israel and Egypt buried the hatchet and made peace. It was an incredibly optimistic moment for Israel and for some of the Arab world. I think it's safe to say since that time, it's largely been downhill. And I just returned to Israel again for the first time right before the pandemic. And I found still that same vibrant culture. But the main thing that I took away from it is the way in which it has become an intensely militarized and politicized society. There's nobody is neutral, everyone is embattled. The politics within the Jewish community of Israel have fractured and become incredibly polarized, it felt, quite frankly, like a society in entropy, just yeah. shattering in a thousand different directions. So it's a it's a place that you cannot remain neutral about. One yeah. way or another, it will bring you into its conflicts. And I think both of our guests, to some extent, captured a little bit of that sense of exhaustion that they're in this kind of constant roundabout without any way out.
1: We, in your in our conversation with Yousef, of course, you, you mentioned the myopia that we as Americans have when we look at Israel and Palestine. And look, the Israel that you and I grew up with and grew up looking at through our televisions, or in your case, actually, in real life, um, seems not to exist anymore. Uh, maybe we were looking at a myth in the first place. We certainly were listening to a story, a legend. Um, but at the same time, look, we have Israeli friends and we have Palestinian friends, and we know how much sincerity and concern and and love and resentment there is you know on all sides of this of this conflict there is there is such a deep and almost intractable human story and conflict here uh, but what we see in israel now uh, betrays any of those moments of hope right we were very young people during the camp david Accords, right? We were in our early adulthood during the Oslo Accords in the early 1990s, when until the assassination of Yitzhak Rabin, it looked like, you know, the leadership of the Palestinian Authority and the leadership of Israel might understand that they had to live together and there had to be some sort of path toward a peaceful future. It doesn't seem like any of that is in play anymore. It doesn't seem like there is a a step down even a step to step down in in Israel right now um do you see any hope in this and what is our responsibility as Americans to this situation
0: yeah i mean i i think our both of our guests have sort of pointed very gently to some of our responsibilities and that is to change our our frame uh, about this conflict. Look, I mean, when I was a kid and we went to Israel, we bought in hook, line, and sinker to the notion that Israel, to root for Israel was to root for the underdog. Here was a community sure. of people that was brought to the brink of destruction by the horrible Nazi machine. They made the desert bloom. They made the desert bloom. They were Look at them Building this democracy yeah. in, the, in the midst of, uh, quote unquote, the desert, surrounded by enemies, et cetera. So we bought that because it mapped on to a kind of storybook idea of what America was all about. Right, right. And in a lot of ways, we made the same mistakes. <laughs> yeah, uh, looking at Israel and not realizing what its uh, indigenous population right. was, in the same way we've troubled ourselves in the United States context, but we have to rethink our notion of who has power, who is the victim, uh, who is the underdog. How can we help uh, center the suffering and the trauma of Palestinians while also encouraging the improvement of Israeli democracy to the extent that Americans have any influence whatsoever on that? You know, just to 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 bring this back to the theme of our show, I mean. One of the things that we've talked about again and again are the risks of democracy. Democracy is scary because you suddenly embrace a form of governance and of self-rule that allows unpredictable things to happen. Israel is afraid of democracy yeah. right now. And uh, honestly, a lot of Americans are afraid of democracy. We There are a lot of countries in, who fear the possible outcomes of genuine democracy of genuine self-government. And, you know, in this sense, the best thing we can do is to try to hold Israel to the values of democracy so that maybe that's the beginning of including its long subject uh, citizens, Palestinians, in their polity.
1: Yeah, yeah. Democracy is dangerous. The dangers of democracy, that's the reason why that other apartheid state of our youth, South Africa, resisted it for so long, right? And, And it hasn't been easy. Uh, since the, uh, the the liberation and establishment of South Africa, uh, to to establish a, a a stable and prosperous society, uh, but it's not impossible. It's almost necessary uh, uh, because the alternative is further brutality, and further death, and deeper historical scarring, and that just makes it harder to reach any point of a stable future. That does it for this episode and for season six of Democracy in Danger, or as we might start calling it, Democracy is Dangerous. We have much more coming up in the fall, a lot on the culture and the art of government by
0: the people. In the meantime, we'll share some rebroadcasts in your feed, along with some favorite episodes from our sister shows. Let us know what you think on Twitter at d Podcast, that's D-I-N-D Podcast. Or even better,
1: take a second and review the show on your podcast app. Visit our webpage as well, it's org. You'll find much more about our guests and all the
0: ideas that have inspired the show. Democracy in Danger is produced by Robert Armengold. We say goodbye today to a team of incredible UVA students. Yeah. Rebecca Barry, our assistant producer, Ellie Bashkow, our engineer, and interns Ava Kretzinger Walters, Ellis Nolan, and B. Webster. Thank you so much, guys, and good luck to all of you.
1: Yeah, good luck. Uh, you know, support for this show comes from the University of Virginia's College of Arts and Sciences. The show is a project of UVA's Karsh Institute of Democracy. We're distributed by the Virginia Audio Collective of WTJU Radio in Charlottesville.
0: I'm Siva Vadianathan. And I'm Will Hitchcock, wishing everyone a peaceful summer.
3: Shalom and ma salama.